stand together with me and as we turn to John 14. John 14, we take up the word in verse 4. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do rejoice that in our worship you speak to us. We do not come to hear the words of man. We come that we would consider the inspired word of old, that you moved holy men of old, the prophets and the apostles. You moved them to write the very word of God, that in them we find and hear Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as you've appointed down through the church age the preaching of the word, that you would bless that which you've appointed, foolishness to men and a stumbling block to so many. And yet, Lord, in it you demonstrate your power, power unto salvation, and that indeed through the preached word, a faithful preached word, we would hear Christ, see Christ displayed in glory. Lord, bless that which you've appointed. Bless us to have ears to hear and eyes to see, even as we've just sung in our song of prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen may be seated. I want to begin this morning by looking back to the beginning. It's, it's been a blessing that as your pastor we preach through Genesis, uh, the book of beginnings where we see so many other things laid out there and that we can turn back to it again and again. I want us to go back to the garden before sin, before the fall, before the curse that followed with that sin. God declared that which he had made at the end of his creation, he said it is all very good. Man, being part of it, man, male and female, made in God's image, lived in the presence of God. It was all very good. They enjoyed a fellowship with God. Adam and Eve had sinless communion and fellowship with the living God. We can only imagine what that will be like. But there's a day when we shall know it, actually in a better status than even that which they had. They were sinless, and they enjoyed perfect, I would say unhindered communion with the living God who had made them for his own glory. Four years ago, we were in the third chapter of Genesis, and we heard how Satan came entering into the serpent, coming in the form of a serpent to tempt Adam. Adam then rebelled, believed the lie, rebelled against God, and God cursed the ground, and he cursed Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were no longer holy. That's a concept that's lost in our day as even as nations engage with nations, that there's this assumption of the goodness of man. There's no goodness found in man. We are unholy, unrighteous, unwashed centers, whether individually or corporately in the whole. Adam and Eve found themselves in such a state. They were sinners. They were guilty. So God shed blood and clothed them. Not that that blood was sufficient, but it was to point forward to that one that God had announced to them, that there would be a seed of the woman in the course of time who would come to crush the serpent's head. It was that first announcement of a good news. Even right on the heels of sin and rebellion, God pronounced 
good news of the gospel. But even so, what we find in Genesis 3, the closing words of that chapter, sets up a principle that runs through the scriptures. As Adam and Eve are driven out, there's this desire to come back. Indeed, God's desire, God's plan to bring man back out of the world, an exodus to bring man back into fellowship with God. Listen to what Moses records in the closing verses of Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword into which every, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Driven out to the east, away from God. And we find that when Abraham is called, he's then known as Abram, he is out in the east and God calls him. And as you look at his progression, God brings him west, back to where the garden would be. And and we have that picture of the garden, the ultimate uh, fulfillment of the promise of God, the promised land, the land that God promised to give to Abraham and to his descendants after him. And then we find later in the opening opening chapters of Exodus, here's the descendants of Abraham. They are in Egypt, which is a picture of being in the world, in sin, in bondage, and God brings them out into the land of promise. Again, pointing to God's plan to bring a people to himself once more. So it is God being a God of mercy and grace. He's already decreed a way of redemption, a way for sinful man to come back into fellowship with God. For this is our chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It is for this purpose that we were made. And God announced that there would be a way where that would happen. It's interesting, I find it interesting that it's in him speaking to the serpent God speaks to the serpent, then to the woman, and then to Adam. Even as he began, when he came and found them after the sin, he began with Adam, to the woman, to the serpent. And God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel picture of the cross. We find ourselves in John, the hour of Christ, moving to that moment when the serpent would bruise his heel, and yet Christ would crush his head. Before his mankind was driven out, God already had a plan for bringing mankind back out of the world. An exodus, returning to dwell in the presence of God forever. A great exodus out of sin, death. It is all prefigured in the picture of the exodus that Moses led out. Moses led the people out of the land of Egypt, back into the land of promise. It's that greater exodus that is accomplished by the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings sinners, even us, out of sin, death, death, out from under the wrath of the living God, into heaven, into the presence of God once more and forevermore. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism captures this so well. When the question is asked, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Short answer is no. But you children know, as you learn the catechism, that the answer is awesome begins with the question. 
the Shorter Catechism 20, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate. Here's where we find ourselves apart from Christ, to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and to bring them into the estate of salvation by a redeemer. That's the Exodus. This, it was ultimately accomplished in Christ. It's what's prefigured throughout the book of Exodus and the wanderings of Leviticus and Numbers before God brings them in to the land under Joshua. The end of the answer mentions an estate of salvation by a redeemer, which begs the question, and the Shorter Catechism picks it up, number 21, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice something in there? Uh, Last week, I believe it was, children, we were talking about absolute words, never, always. Well, here's another one, only. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, and here's why he alone, who being the eternal son of God became man, the incarnation that we remember at Christmas time, he became man and so was, and this is significant, it continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and yet one person forever. Oh, my friends, that is glorious truth. This is how we are brought back into communion and fellowship with the living God of heaven. It is by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made in God's image to enjoy God. But sin has ruined that. But God has sent his son to bring us back to him. Mankind's banishment away from God was just. It was just for God to send Adam and Eve out of the garden and indeed, it was his goodness, even as we heard in the pronouncements of, of pronouncement of God there at the end of Genesis 3, lest they also reach out and eat of the tree of life and be sealed forever in a state of sin and misery and rebellion. It was that God was just. But being a just God, he alone could bring mankind back in a manner that proved and upheld God's justice, holiness, goodness and truth. Therefore, the way out of sin and misery is exclusive. God alone is the one who appoints it. God alone knows what his justice and holiness is. He alone understands how great is the rebellion and how great is the chasm between man and God. And God has provided a way. That's the good news. There is a way. There is only one way. There's only one redeemer of God's elect. There is no other. So this morning, as we consider the exclusivity of the gospel, we use four main heads. We begin with, I am God, and there is no other. Then we will consider Jesus' announcement, this very familiar, famous, oft-memorized, for good reason, statement of Jesus. I am the way, and we'll consider reconciliation with God. I am the truth, revelation from God. I am the life regeneration by God, and we will conclude with a question, is Jesus your exclusive God? Let's begin then with, I am God and there is no other. A couple of weeks ago, we heard Jesus' pronouncement to his disciples that he was going away and that where he was going, they could not follow him at that time, but 
they would follow him afterwards. Last week, we heard Jesus declare that he was going to prepare a place for his church so that they could come, that he would come and gather them to be with him to where he was. There, they could be also. Do you hear echoes from the garden? God's people, a sinful people, in some way worked in and upon by God so that they could dwell with God. Christ was saying as God, God the Son, that he would gather his people at church to be where he was. It's the ultimate exodus, to be back in the presence of the living God, back in fellowship with him. And it is open to his church, to those who are found in him. We pick up in the midst of this revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ to the eleven, those eleven apostles who uh, picture the church and indeed it would become the foundation upon which the church is laid. In verse 4, Jesus tells them, and where I go, you know. He's been talking about going, preparing, and coming again. And he says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. And in this context, Thomas speaks up, says to the Lord, Lord, we do not know. It's a very sincere and honest answer. Uh, There's humility in that. Lord, we don't know where you are going, and therefore, how can we know the way? Notice it's Thomas that's speaking for the group. He does speak for the group. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Who do we usually hear do that? Peter. Peter's silent. I was reflecting on that in preparing this sermon. Peter's silent, no doubt, because he has just been greatly humbled for his boasting. Peter is silent, and Peter remains silent. The next time we see Peter in the Gospels, he's he's swinging a sword. And the next time it's recorded, we hear Peter speaking, he's denying his Lord. The next time we encounter Peter speaking, it will be in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, that he would deny that he even knew the Lord three times, even that night before the early hours of the morning when the roosters begin to crow. And so Thomas asks the question, makes the statement, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. Now it should be noted, he should have known, right? If you've been paying attention in John's gospel, Jesus has made it clear where he's come from and where he's going. But it's interesting that Jesus does not rebuke his beloved disciples. Consider all that is happening in the other room, uh, upper room at that time. Uh, Judas has been pointed out as to be one who would betray Jesus. And they don't know that at this point. John records it later on. But Judas has gone out and Jesus has told him, you know, what he's going to do, hurry up and do it. And Peter, of all people, has just been said he's going to deny the Lord that very night. There's confusion. The hour has come, an hour they don't understand. He's talked about a death, a crucifixion. He's talked about leading up to this. He'll be arrested and turned over even to the Romans. All this is swirling in their mind, and Jesus is merciful to them. He does not rebuke them for what they should have known. Lord, we don't know. And Jesus said to him, answering the last question, I am the way. Notice the I am. Now, as we consider, thinking that they should have known, back in John 6, Jesus has taught that he came down from heaven. He's made it clear, I've come from the Father. This is what had the religious leaders fired up and angry at him. They they thought it was blasphemy, although it was true. 
in John chapter 8, Jesus has said that he was sent by the Father. He said, quote, I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Do you hear echoes of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave. He sent. He sent his son. He has been sent from the Father, and Jesus has made that clear. So when Jesus answers Thomas and those with him, he does so with words that we know so well. I am. I am. In John's gospel, we find seven I am. We have covered five of them this far, and this, this is the sixth. We've heard Jesus declare that he, I am the bread of life, followed by I am the light of the world, and on the heels of that I am the door of the sheep, and immediately after that I am the good shepherd. We have considered each of these, and then we found ourselves at a tomb with a friend of Jesus, Lazarus, dead, four days dead. He was a four-day man, a stinking corpse. And Jesus announced, I am the resurrection of the life. And indeed, he demonstrated that he was the resurrection of the life. And now Jesus adds this six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at verse six with me. Notice something remarkable. He doesn't say, I am the way, truth, and life. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, children, some of you and your grammar might have learned that the T-H-E, the is a definite article. I don't want to get all bogged down in grammar because, trust me, I am not a grammarian. But I do understand that the article, the definite article that is here is very significant. Jesus doesn't say, I am a bread, um, a way, a resurrection. He says, I am Thee. There's exclusivity in his pronouncement. It's an exclusivity that spins men's clocks. They get so irritated because what do they want to do? It's what we saw in Isaiah. They want to make idols. They want to follow their idols. It's more convenient when you fashion your own idol and follow a God that you've made. But God comes and he says, if you would have communion and fellowship with me, it's exclusive. That way is found in Christ and thus Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And indeed, Jesus has demonstrated that each of these are true. All the I am's are true. And these are uniquely true in Christ and in no other. No other is like unto the Lord Jesus Christ. In the next few verses, Jesus will be asked more questions about these same things. And he will answer in a similar way, uh, similar uh, variations on verse 6. But notice Jesus says, I am providentially this morning in my reading i was in exodus 3 some of you remember that's the burning bush and this is when god declares to moses as moses says who should i tell the sons of abraham isaac and jacob that are back in egypt who should i tell them has sent me your commission who am i going to say what's your name and god says i am i he takes a verb of existence. He says, I am. I am the self-existent one. I depend on no other. That is who I am. And that is what Jesus has said. And this is not the first time he said it. But here he makes it clear, I am. Exclusive claim. He is the self-existent God. Now this is the truth that John opened with in the prologue back in chapter 1. Listen again to those familiar words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life 
was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And we hear those words again, well into John's gospel. Have we not seen that? The darkness beheld him, and it did not comprehend him. John, in the prologue, is telling us that Jesus is the Word. And as the Word, he is God. He is God, the Word. He is God come in the flesh. He's the creator. Jesus was the life, for indeed all life that is arrives and derives from him. And in that, he is the light. And he came to earth. He came in the human flesh. He came born of the virgin as the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and he was conceived within her. And according to his humanity, it came from a virgin. His God, God is his father. He's not like any other man. From the conception onward, he is unique because he proceeds before the incarnation. He proceeds and exists before there was that remarkable union of God and man, yet two distinct natures and one person forever. Jesus, the son of Mary, was in fact the son of God. That's what the angel told her. When she said, how how can this be? For I'm a virgin. He said, the spirit of the Almighty will overshadow you. And thus it will be that the son that you will bear will be the son of God. And you should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. He will accomplish what is necessary for the ultimate and the final exodus to bring men out of the world as they are away from God to bring them back to God. And so it was that Jesus came. And as the Son of God, he took on human flesh, God and man. As we confess, very God of very God, light and so forth, but also born of the virgin, having our flesh, God incarnate. That is what the word speaks of, God in the flesh. This is exclusive. There is no other like him. No other virgin births. No other comings of the living God from heaven. It'll never be for there no, no necessity for it. For he alone is exclusively the one. He's the only one. He's the way of life. And he alone is fully and uniquely equipped being God and man was necessary that he be one of us in order to redeem us. You see that in the sacrificial system that God appointed for Moses to give to the people. We even see it foreshadowed as God slew animals in the garden and clothed Adam and Eve in their, in their uh, skins. There was the shedding of blood. We find Abel, a prophet, shedding blood. And we find Abraham, when he's called out, he's one making sacrifice. And when you consider that, and then the, the erecting of the, the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness, and God appointing the morning and evening sacrifice, and we read on through the record of redemption of untold numbers of animals whose blood was spilt, not adequate, not sufficient, not able to atone for the sins of men. A blessing for those who did what God had commanded by faith. But nonetheless, any faithful worshiper would recognize there's some other blood. Though we're to do this, and, and I do this in obedience, there's, there's a better blood. There's a sufficient blood. There's a once-for-all atoning blood. And my friends, that is found in Christ Jesus alone. There is no other blood by which our sins are washed away. There is no other sacrifice that would satisfy the living God. He is God, and there is no other. I am exclusive. Reject this, and you do so to your own peril, and you will perish forevermore. 
but indeed believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of Christ, who is God, is you shall be saved. Hallelujah. Glorious truth. Well, secondly, we consider, I am the way. This is the first of Jesus' pronouncement. I am the way. And it is through this one, the way, we have reconciliation with God. We've, we've already talked about this, even leading up to this. In the introduction, we were looking back at the beginning of how one man's sin brought all mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Large or short of Catechism 19 speaks of this. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse. And so made liable to all the miseries of this life and the pains of hell forever. Adam and Eve were driven out. They were driven out of the garden. Driven away from God because of sin. They died spiritually immediately and thus they hid from God. They knew that the relationship with God was suddenly altered because of their sinful rebellion. They were driven out of the garden and indeed they did die physically in due time. And no one can come then to God and fellowship with him so long as sin reigns. Why is that so? Because God is holy. He is holy beyond our comprehension. The scripture gives us some sense of that, that his holiness is described as an unapproachable light. How long can you look at the sun before you burn your eyes out or turn away? Only so briefly. And my friends, that is like a dim little nightlight that we plug into the wall in comparison to the infinite and immense holiness of God. It is a blazing light that consumes all before it that is unholy. God is holy, 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 completely other. There is no other like him. And so it is that that which is sinful must be driven away from the presence of God. Well, Jesus, as the Son of God, his household has fully the righteousness of God. The holiness of God is his because he is God. And though he came in the form of a servant and and was indeed clothed in human flesh, it does not change the reality that he, the person, is still the Son of God. He is holy and righteous in all his ways. And so it was he lived on earth. And as what we've heard through John's gospel is that he did the will of the Father. Children, I want to go back to one of those, those absolutes. Jesus always always obeyed his father and Jesus never sinned and again there's no other like him that makes him uniquely suited he is a perfect man he is sinless pure and undefiled and therefore he alone could pay the penalty he alone could be a sacrifice for sin Uh, for us to pay the penalty for our sin it would be to be banished from the presence of God forever into something like a lake of fire that ever burns and it never is consumed and and what's in it is never consumed forever and ever and ever that's what was to be required for us to pay for the offense of our sin with a holy God but Jesus has no offense he is the perfect sacrifice And so Jesus came from the Father, did the will of the Father, and part of the will of the Father is unfolding before us in John's Gospel, this hour that is appointed for him, that he would go to the cross as a sin bearer and make atonement, standing in the place of all those whom the Father had given to him, that he should pay the debt they owed. 
that he would receive the wrath of God, even his own wrath as God, as he suffered and died on the cross. And thus, after that death and resurrection, he's going back to the Father to prepare a place for those whom he has purchased. And he's told his disciples that they would follow him later. We, you and I, are we're all sinners. Anyone who would hear those words, we are all sinners. We have no title to God's home. I read a little vignette of someone much like us, but because of something he was involved in, he had occasion to be in the White House under previous administration and, and a meeting in the Roosevelt Room, which is right across from the Oval Office. And as the meeting is wrapped up, his host, who was involved in this particular labor, says, would you like to see the Oval Office? And he was ushered in there. The president was away. He was traveling. But he was in the Oval Office, and he was just struck with the reality. He says, if I wasn't with this guy, I couldn't be here. I, I have no right to be here. And again, in just an infinitesimal little way, that's the picture of heaven. We have no right to heaven. The audacity of sinners in our day to think that they're going to stand before the Almighty who is infinitely holy and negotiate with God over their goodness and their sin and convince them that somehow their goodness outweighs their wickedness. That is blasphemy. That is sacrilege. And it does violence to the present, the, the, the living God who sent his Son. Let all who think such be disassociated and perish for such thoughts. Christ alone is sufficient. You have no right to heaven apart from him. But the good news of the gospel is, he says, for my people, I'm I'm preparing a place, and I'm going to take you, not into the Oval Office, I'm going to take you into the presence of God to dwell with him forevermore. Oh, glorious, marvelous thought. This is what Jesus come. He's come in order to reconcile us to the Father. He's come in order that we might be at peace with God, that our sins would be forgiven for it is sin that has kept us out. We are sinners in rebellion against God. And if we're going to get into heaven, we need peace with God. And my friends, Jesus is that Prince of Peace. He's come to make peace with the Father. And he alone is able to do that. He alone can fix our sin problem. He wipes out the debt. He pays the penalty. He opens the way to God. You see, the Father sent his Son into the world for this very purpose. As Jesus was being born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, the Father sent his angels to announce his birth to shepherds who were out on the fields that night. And they heard these men, these, I mean, these angelic beings declaring, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of goodwill. Not to all. But to men of goodwill, how can we be men of goodwill that we would have this peace with God? It's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we believe on him and we are saved. And so you see, Jesus is the servant of our covenant faithful Lord who came to see, save sinners. We're going to hear much more of that as we find ourselves where we are in the book of Isaiah. In order to do this, Jesus, in order that is to bring us to the Father, he needs to fix the problem of our sin. And that is exactly what he did as our priest. He made a sacrifice of himself on the altar of himself. In his humanity, he was sacrificed on that which was holy, his deity. He, in his humanity, died for our sin. 
God's wrath. Let's just pause for a minute. God's wrath. We use that word uh, almost too comfortably. God's wrath is beyond our comprehension. You want some glimpse of what it looks like? We look into the cross when the Holy Son of God, who is the sin bearer for his people, God punishes him. So that even the earth shakes and it's dark as night in the middle of the day because something truly remarkable is happening. The wrath of God is being visited upon Christ for us. My friends, if you are found in Christ by faith, you will never, there's an absolute children, you will never know the wrath of God because Jesus has paid it all. But my friends, if you are apart from Christ, when you draw your last breath or Jesus comes again, all you will know, all that will consume your every moment is the wrath of God. Jesus has borne it. He has fixed this problem. He has paid the penalty. The debt is paid. He's removed our guilt. He's washed away our sin. But then we need one more thing. We need to be holy. We need to be righteous before God. And even as our sin was credited to Christ's account, that he would pay for that from his account, Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. And therefore we're holy. We're accepted in the Lord. We're received in the presence of God. God has reconciled sinners to himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus he says, I am the way. You want to come out of the world, the misery, darkness. You want to enjoy the blessings of that great exodus to come back into the presence of God and have communion and fellowship with him. Christ is the way. He's the only way. And indeed, he has opened the way that we might come to God. The greatest exodus of all. Thus, Jesus says, I am the way to be reconciled to God. There is no other. It is exclusive. Reject this and you will perish forevermore. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Thirdly, we find Jesus declare, I am the truth. Is the revelation from God. Out of this, out of the first one, we've considered that Jesus is the way these next two flow and follow, that I am the truth and the life. How do we know that all these things that I've just preached are true? Are we to trust man, men, me, any other man? No, we trust Jesus as the living word. He is the one who has spoken and enabled prophets of old to write things. The apostles, even this apostle, John, who writes this thing, the Holy Spirit of Christ is speaking through John. And thus we know these things are true. We believe them because Jesus Christ has revealed them to the sons of Adam. Sin ruined what man knew about God. Sin marred man's ability to think rightly about God. Thus, man thinks it's enough just to take a piece of wood and and carve an image. That'll do. You see just how much sin has ruined an understanding within man. We're all prone to lie and to believe a lie rather than the truth. You see, Satan, as the father of lies, has infected all men to be liars and to believe a lie. It was Satan who called to question God's truthfulness in the garden. Basically, you could sub up his temptation to Adam and Eve and say, Satan was calling God a liar. He was telling Adam and Eve, God lied to you. If you just go ahead and eat of this tree, then you can be like God. And God's trying to keep something back from you. Lies. 
lies. Lie. Pernicious evil. The greatest lie ever told. And that's what Jesus said. He's, he's also a murderer. Because what happened? Adam rebelled and he ate. And he died. And we all died in him. The greatest murder ever perpetuated. And then, as if that was not, he sought through evil men to murder the son of glory, as it were, to take the, the uh, vineyard and have it for himself, as Jesus spoke of in the parable. Jesus is the one who spoke through the prophets. And in the fullness of time, he spoke by coming to earth. Galatians 4, 4. The fullness of time he came, born of a woman, made under the law. He lived amongst men. He came as the seed of the woman. And it was the great battle between him and the seed of the serpent. But really it was no contest. Considering who he is, the mighty God. So he was the one who spoke through the prophets. In Westminster Shorter Catechism 24, we find this, that Jesus is the truth, and in his office as a prophet, what does he do? He reveals to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. We wouldn't know otherwise. He is the truth. He reveals the will of God for our salvation. Not only the will of God for our salvation, but the way of salvation. He sets it forth through his prophets of old, these things have been foretold from of old. Even as we've been seeing through the book of Isaiah, they're there in Genesis all the way through to Malachi. Jesus is the one who is in the scriptures. He is the scriptures. He's revealed by the prophets and the apostles. It's all about him because he is the truth and it isn't found in no other. And thus, Jesus says, I am the truth. And there is no other revelation but that which is found in me. It's exclusive. Reject this, and you have no hope. But believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Fourthly, we find Jesus says, I am the life. This speaks of the regeneration done by God. The revelation of the word of God, the truth that is Christ, tells us that sin rendered all dead. Remember in Romans 5 that Paul talked about how by one man sin entered the world and in him all died. We're all dead. Isn't it remarkable? We, we have a new little born baby. Some of you have, we've all been little babies, but some of you have beheld and held your own little babies. It's a wonderful thing. I was reflecting on this last week. I miss having little babies. I just enjoy it so much. And yet the reality is those precious little ones that are just so delightful and enjoyable they're dead in their sins. They draw breath. Their heart beats. And yet, spiritually, they're dead. And, you know, they get a little bit older and you start being reminded that they're sinners, right? It's very real. You know, somebody once said, you know, if you don't believe that uh, we're born sinners, that we come into the world depraved, you've never beheld a little child. That's because Adam sin. When he ate, Adam died. And we all died in him. We are all transgressors and we are all dead. That's our problem. Remember when John the Baptist, back in the beginning of 
John's gospel, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's baptizing a baptism of repentance. And then Jesus goes out to be baptized, anointed by him as the Christ, as the Messiah. John giving an understanding by the Holy Spirit that this is no ordinary man. He says, I'm not worthy to, to stoop down and unloose the latch of his sandal. And John says of him, this is one. He says, first, he says, I baptize with water, but one who's coming after me will baptize with spirit, the spirit and with fire. And that's what's unfolded in John's gospel. We have noted that in numerous places where we see that happen. Though John doesn't record the woman at the well in Sychar that Jesus baptized her with the spirit and fire. But he did. What did he do in that woman? Why do we see the transformation as we follow along in that discourse, the narrative of what took place there? She came out at noon avoiding uh, the other people in the community because she was ashamed and she was guilty. She had right to be so. And she had an encounter with Jesus who offered her living water, and she went home rejoicing. She says, come and see the man who has told me all the things that I've done. Her sins are forgiven. The guilt and sin, thane of sin is washed away, and she's bearing witness to God because she's been regenerated. She's been made alive unto God in salvation. The Holy Spirit has baptized her, even as the Son has sent it forth to do this. When Jesus engaged with Nicodemus, chapter 3, three times he says, you must be born again, you must be born from above, and you must be born of the Spirit. What's that all about? John's giving us that account early on that we would understand our problem requires regeneration. We need to be made alive unto God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, and Jesus has come to do this mighty work. We saw it displayed so vividly at the tomb of Lazarus, who is the very picture in physical form of what we are apart from Christ, dead in our sins and corrupt. And Jesus, even as he was able to call Lazarus, a four-day dead man out of the tomb, as the resurrection of life, he called him forth. Jesus is able to do that for every sinner who calls upon the name of the Lord. He does the work of regeneration, this mighty work. I've thought about that and, you know, what it must have been like. We understand biologically what happens is a body decomposes. Maybe that's too gross to go there for some of you. Um, I'm a hunter. I've been in the woods. I've come on dead animals, some of them more than four days. And uh, it's a putrid thing. Lazarus' sisters were mindful that, Lord, he stinks. There's a decomposition and a decay that has gone on that, Humanly speaking, naturally, normally speaking, it's impossible to undo. You see that in a human body. You know, some of you have family members that are diabetic and you get certain injuries and then gangrene cuts in and that putrefaction has begun. You cannot medically regenerate what is decaying. It must be cut off. And how much worse is our condition? Dead spiritually, corrupt, foul, festering and God is able infinitely able to override all that to undo all that the work of regeneration the mighty God power of God unto salvation is able to take that which is dead and make it alive that which is in rebellion against him to bring it into submission and yieldedness this is the work accomplished by Christ when he says I am the life This is what he's doing. Back in John 10.10, Jesus announced, I am come that they may have life. Not just a little bit. 
He said, I'm come that they might have life abundantly. That's what Jesus brings. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you reject Christ as a life, my friends, there is no other way for you to be born again. You will remain dead in your sin and apart from God. But Jesus says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That brings us to our conclusion with this question. Is Jesus your exclusive God? This message that you've heard today is offensive to the world because the world is bound in iniquity. But when the Spirit works... That which was once offensive becomes joy and delight as God would work in us to regenerate us, to open our eyes and ears, to see Christ, to hear the gospel. Suddenly that which is offensive is delight. Why are we here this morning? Why have we come? We all could have slept in and had a good, you know, nice late brunch. We've come because of what Jesus has done. This this message we believe But my friends, it's offensive to those around us. What Isaiah has spoken in chapter 44 is so true. Men naturally, men and women, boys and girls, naturally worship. We are made to worship. We will worship. It can be no other. And we hear so much today about a person of faith or they're spiritual. My response to that is, get ready for this, whoopee-doo. But actually, you should be like, oh, my. Oh, dear. Because it's a deception. It's, it's propping up your, your cedar-carved image that is toppled over and propping it up. You know, I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. And you will perish in the fires of hell apart from Christ. There's a thousand. Actually, how many people are there? Seven billion or whatever we're up to now? There's that many religions. False religions. There's only one true religion, and that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am. I am God, and there is no other, and I am therefore the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And thus, because he humbled himself to accomplish the salvation, God says of him, therefore I have given him a name that is above every name, that by the name of Jesus Christ every tongue should confess, and every knee should bow, confessing that he is the Lord of glory, is key, your exclusive Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we do rejoice. Oh, Father, we are so thankful. You have not left us in sin. You have not left us to the darkness. You have not left us in Egypt. False gods all around, but you have stooped to rescue us. You have delivered us, and you've brought us near so near that we are now called the sons and daughters of the living God because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, in his life on the cross, and then applied in our hearts by his spirit. Oh, blessed God, would you continue to call people to yourself? Would you call our sons and our daughters, our little ones to yourself? Would you call sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers, who are yet deceived into thinking that they have a sufficient religion Lord, we just strip away the scales from their eyes that they can give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart of understanding that Christ alone is the way of salvation and that it would be their confession that he is their way and their God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand together. We're going to sing number 155.